1: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.
0: It is 8.07 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. One of my favorite guests uh, along for the ride, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University joining us on uh, what appears to be another tragic evening, a terrorist attack uh, in the heart of London. Professor Schultz, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Anytime. Thanks for having me on, even though it's a terrible sort of news item to start with.
0: Well, I, I think it's just so shocking. I, you know, you almost feel like you can't look away for 45 minutes, which, which is what I did. And then driving here, I heard Eric Nelson, you know, t- the post who preceded me, talking about this. Uh, And hearing the CBS News reports, I mean, it is shocking. Uh, There was two weeks ago that horrible attack at the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. Then uh, a few weeks before that was the attack on the Westminster Bridge. It appears that this attack does have similarities to that first attack in that part of this attack involved, according to multiple reports, uh, you know, a truck plowing into uh, some pedestrians who were, simply walking down a very popular – one of the most popular London attractions of all time, which is the London Bridge. Uh, Within about an hour of this attack, the president tweeted that this was an example of why the United States should put into place his travel ban. Your thoughts about that tweet and where are we with this controversial travel ban that has been struck down even in its revised version – by an appeals court recently.
1: Okay, let's start with the uh, with the latter first, which is that the travel ban has never actually been struck down. What's happened is that a district court for both the first travel ban and for the second one have issued a stay, basically an injunction preventing the Trump administration from going forward with actually enforcing it. When they issued that stay, they said that it was more likely than not that when a full hearing would be heard on the ban it would probably be struck down as unconstitutional. But technically, all that's done at this point, the court has issued a stay. And so we, you're correct. So we had the first one stayed, um, and where we are at this And then point, they revised it. They revised it, and that was stayed also. Um, and what's happening at this point is that a court of appeals has upheld the lower court staying um, of the travel ban, and now the Trump administration on Friday filed a, an expedited appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court Asking for the lower court um, stay on the travel ban to be lifted, um, it's and that's where it is right now. Chances of the Supreme Court lifting a stay are very, very narrow. Um, right. And that was
0: that was my my, my next question. Um, yeah. So th- they're appealing the appeals court ruling, or, or the you know they they issued a stay uh, just a few weeks ago on the revised version of the travel ban. Why do you think it's unlikely? Is it just that you know? The Supreme Court does not like to get involved when there's a stay?
1: Yes. Yeah. It's, it's generally very hard for appeals courts to overturn stays by lower courts. You have to show some kind of real real serious you know, error of law in terms of, 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 of doing that. And the appeals court didn't find it. We make, well, the appeals
0: court just slammed the oh, Trump did. administration's position. I mean, this was not even a close call. I mean, they took... The president to task
1: exactly, and what's important to understand is again when when you um, file for a stay against them for a restraining order or in this case a temporary restraining order, uh, one of the things that courts look for is whether or not you are more likely than not to win on the merits, um, and, and so these restraining orders basically saying that if they grant it, we think you're going to win eventually. However, we're just going to. We don't have time to do the full hearing right now. We're just going to push, put a stay in here. And the reason why that's important, especially when we got to the Court of Appeals, is that the Court of Appeals started using all those Trump tweets against him and all his political statements he had made throughout the campaign, talking about how he was going to prevent Muslims from getting into the country, refer to the tweets and so forth. And so at some point, all this, all these Twitter feeds, all these tweets, all these text messages that he's sending out as President Trump and candidate Trump are coming back to hurt him legally in mm-hmm. terms of being used against him, um, in terms of supporting the fact that that it was a discriminatory ban. So now that connects us to the, the tweet that he sent, you know, th- you know, this evening or late this afternoon. Uh, again, you know, there's no indication you know, at this point w- regarding who we know in terms of who's involved with, you know, with but this but this uh, probably terrorist attack. Um, certainly, um, we have no indication that. It was anybody at this point from any of those countries that he wanted to target. Again, we have no no evidence whatsoever regarding who is involved, et cetera, et cetera, right. in this. And so, so again, this may be a tweet that was sent out. Um,
0: it was within an hour. I was
1: going to say, going to say sent, sent out in a way that won't do him any good in terms of helping him before the U.S. Supreme Court and arguably could wind up hurting him even more. Right.
0: Well, and, you know, in, in the horrific attack on Manchester, the, the, you know, suspect who blew himself up in that attack, that suspect was actually somebody who his parents were immigrants, but he had been born mm-hmm. in the U.K. So he was a citizen. Right. And so so that's one thing that um you know what's what's not clear and, and again there's there's no evidence and it certainly appears highly highly unlikely that an hour after this incident the president would have some kind of information that these were in fact immigrants but that's sort of what he seemed to be suggesting. Yes. And um you know in, in terms of um the Twitter use there are multiple reports that the president's you know, biggest supporters, including his inner circle, have, have really pleaded with him to not continue down this path. But this is just something that he does.
1: That's right. Exactly. There was a great piece, I think it was in yesterday's New York Times, that pointed out that initially it was because of political reasons. Now, increasingly, White House lawyers and Justice Department lawyers are pleading with him in terms of saying – Knock it off with the Twitter and knock it off with the text messages because the things that you're sending out there, again, in reference to you know, the Court of Appeals decision, you know, are coming back to hurt you and are being cited now by attorney generals and by people who are suing the White House you know, or suing the president to try to prevent these travel bans and other things from going into effect. But Trump seems to be almost incapable um, of, of not sending out these, these text messages or Twitter or Twitter feeds. And, again, again, doing something one hour after after an attack doesn't do him any good legally. Um, And, again, it could hurt him before the court and politically it could hurt him, too, just in terms of the fact that if it turns out, for example, that these are U.K. citizens or who knows whatever it may be, um, it doesn't doesn't do his case any good.
0: In in terms of um, going back to the Supreme Court and they've got this petition here, um, you know, to to get an expedited hearing before the the Supreme Court, I think maybe some people might say or maybe the Trump administration is thinking, well, hey, we've got our guy, you know, Neil Gorsuch is now on the court. So theoretically, if you are looking at sort of ideologies, it's a 5-4 split for conservatives. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think about that? Because I'm sure there are some people who are thinking, well, President Trump should win if he takes it to the Supreme
1: Court. Well pot- well, potentially, yes, if it were to split along ideological reasons, then it would be um, a victory for the Trump administration. but again, the Supreme Court under Justice Roberts um, has has been especially loath to sort of take cases and have generally has been willing to sort of say we 're going to deny jurisdiction, deny hearing a case, and in fact, the number of cases actually being heard by, by Chief Justice Roberts, under his, under his sort of, you know, his you know his his Supreme Court is at a record low for like the last forty to fifty years, and so it's an uphill battle to start with to get an overturning of, of a stay. Put it in with the fact that this is a court that seems fairly unlikely um, and fairly hostile to wanting to to take cases or to second guess in this case stays by lower courts. Um, I would be surprised. Now, there is one example that we saw, and that was uh, the last case I think Justice Scalia was involved in, um, which put a stay on Obama's um, orders to place limits on emissions from coal-fired plants. That was a very, very rare circumstance to see something like that. And so here, not saying it's impossible um, that a 5-4 majority would would lift the stay, um, but having said that, I think the odds are still against it
0: right and and again, going back to that appeals court decision, I mean they came down very hard mm-hmm. in, in basically saying that this is a discriminatory yes flat out discriminatory uh, policy that the president's trying to implement I mean it, right.
1: it sounds- right. and that's important to point out here it wasn't just that they ruled that it was you know de facto or the impact was discriminatory. Uh, they said that this was clearly intentional discrimination. And, it's and then rare. again using the tweets. Exactly, right. And, and it, the president's own statements. Right. It's rare for a court anymore to conclude that there's evidence for outright intentional discrimination. Most of the discrimination cases now that we see are along the lines of, of, in terms of impact, disparate impact. But in this case here, again, because of Trump's tweets, because of his campaign statements, because of his statements as president of the United States, how they referred to the bans as Muslim ban. All that came together to give them sufficient evidence to say we can ascertain that this was intentional discrimination.
0: And also, considering everything else that the president has on his plate, um, it's going to be interesting how this unfolds. Obviously, this is all going to be developing overnight, but the president – and I was just checking to see if there were any other tweets. He did put out another tweet you know, saying expressing solidarity uh, with the U.K. in terms of this, which is something you'd sort of expect, obviously, at a time like this, but uh, – it remains to be seen if there'll be some more unpredictable tweets.
1: I suspect there will be as it starts to unfold, especially probably tomorrow morning. He seems to get up early in the morning and uh, send out lots of tweets first thing.
0: Right. And, and uh, the latest tweet from the uh, president, whatever the United States can do to help out in London and the UK, we will be there. And in all caps, we are with you. God bless. The first tweet, though, that he sent out, uh, is the one that, that I think is bound to raise controversy, which is, quote, we need to be smart, vigilant, and tough. We need the courts to give us back our rights. We need the travel ban as an extra level of safety, linking this incident in in the U.K. to our rights and the travel ban. And obviously this is something that is a terrifying incident.
1: Yes, you know, There's no question about it. But it's hard to see how we can connect all those things together there in terms of how anybody's rights are being um, infringed by the travel ban being put into place, um, when in fact that's protection of rights under the Constitution and under federal immigration law. And it's also sort of hard to figure out how, um, how the, the, the U.K. incident is actually uh, connected to any type of um, possible you know, terrorism in the United States. And so there's an awful lot of leaps of logic there in terms of that tweet.
0: All right. Uh, We're chatting with Professor David Schultz in just a few seconds here. uh, We are going to go to CBS News in London. If you are just joining us, uh, there has been what uh, Prime Minister Theresa May is calling uh, an apparent terrorist attack. There are multiple casualties, multiple people dead at three different locations in London, including the historic London Bridge. Once again, uh, here at WCCO Radio, we're monitoring the situation. But right now, we do want to take you to CBS News. It is eight twenty-three here on News Radio eight three zero WCCO. We are going to be cutting sort of in and out to go back to the situation in London. Obviously, a lot. Uh, going on here. And we want to give you the latest of what appears to be a very tragic and and frightening situation there. My apologies apologies to my guest, Professor David Schultz, uh, hanging in there with us on, on as I said, another very busy evening. I want to thank you for for sticking with us. I want to ask you about uh, an enormous story that, that developed this week with the president announcing that the U.S. will drop out of this Paris global accord for climate change. Your thoughts on
1: that? Well, first off, this is something tr- Trump promised that he was going to do when he was running as, for president of the United States. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody that at the end of the day he did that. You know, so one, he's keeping his promise for good or for bad. Two, um, what we've known is that Trump does not seem to like very much, you know, sort of you know multilateral agreements or treaties, you know, in, in general. And of course, he's also expressed significant concern about treaties such as NAFTA and so forth claiming that the United States is just not getting good deals. And so, so no surprise on anything of what he's doing here. What is interesting, though, is in terms of both the international and the domestic reaction to it. Internationally, um, the United States is being condemned by just about every country in the world, um, um, which was uh, almost every country in the world was signatory to it. Except, except for, I think, Nicaragua, Nicaragua and Syria. North, and North Korea. Those and North Korea, okay. And now so
0: it's Nicaragua, North Korea...
1: And the United States. That's right. That's right. Not a very good group to be to be associated with here. So we're receiving significant criticism from across the world in terms of us stepping out of that treaty. Domestically, what we're seeing is that a lot of states, cities, and even a lot of major businesses um, are saying that they want to pursue strategies on their own in terms of coming into compliance. Are still following with with the Paris Accords, and so it's it's just fascinating to look at it here because. Trump has clearly appealed to his base um, and has said that he's going to keep his promise to his base. And so that part we should respect him for. But in terms of how this plays out politically, um, again, another issue that will be used by the Democrats in 018 um, and at the same time um, another situation where Trump has sort of put the United States um, in an uncomfortable situation with our allies and many other countries from around the world.
0: And apparently even uh, there was a a split within his inner circle with his daughter Ivanka arguing to stay in. She
1: was arguing in favor. Apparently the Secretary of State Tillerson was also arguing for it. And so there were several people within his own administration that were arguing for it. Now, the other thing which I should mention here is that on one level, you know, it's, 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 it's significant that the United States has pulled out of, out, of, out of this agreement, although it was never, per se, binding on the United States since it hadn't been ratified as a treaty by the U.S. Senate. On another st- scale, though, we start to look at how... The cost curves are starting to shift in the United States. You know, part of why Trump is doing this is he wants to help the coal industry, wants to help revive some of the you know coal manufacturing or coal mining, I should say, not manufacturing, um, across the United States. For the most part, the coal industry is is in a situation where it produces far fewer jobs than many of the renewables, than than solar. And in many ways, the use of coal is just not cost-efficient the way it used to be. So I bring this up because if he thinks that, in fact, by renouncing this accord, it's going to help in terms of job production and help in terms of reviving the coal industry, there's practically no evidence that's going to suggest that it's going to have that impact whatsoever.
0: Right. And, and I guess, you know, obviously, this is what he said on the campaign trail, so he's fulfilling basically a campaign promise. Yep. But in terms of politically – is this, you know, amidst all this turmoil, I mean, is this a, a gamble?
1: It is a gamble. Because yet again, it's yet another controversy that he throws his administration into. And the more he has to sort of be on the defensive and, and, and have to sort of withstand the incredible criticism that he is here, including I would say, some divisions which we're gonna probably start to see soon within the Republican Party over this And season. within
0: his own administration his own
1: administration, the more complicated it becomes for him to what? To be successful in terms of moving parts of his legislative agenda. And again, the two things he most immediately wants to be able to do is to repeal the Affordable Care Act, put his his, his plan in place, three things. Second he wants to get his budget through and three he wants to do tax reform all three of them um, are precariously or were precarious before this. And yet again, I think this decision on the Paris Accords makes it even harder for him to be able to amass the support that he needs to be able to move that le- those legislative agendas.
0: And you mentioned a fascinating thing, too, just that that this is really, once again, of his own making.
1: Right, correct. This is not something where uh, it was thrust upon him and it came from somewhere else. This is a decision that he made. And I would also say that the fact that there seemed to be Um, a a relatively agonizing process to make this decision within his administration being very divided. And all this information is starting to come out now. um, Again, doesn't help in terms of the picture of how decision making and how policy is made within the Trump administration.
0: And quickly, you know, in terms of the impact in in just, you know, overall in terms of the worldview and obviously being criticized in so many quarters here, does this hurt his ability to achieve foreign policy goals,
1: it does because it now puts us at, at odds with all but, four, all about three other or four other countries in the world, um, many of them, and those other countries are not exactly our allies. And right. so, among our core allies, Great Britain, <laughs> Canada, France, you know, Germany, the core people who who our friends, our <laughs> allies we are now even more estranged than we were before. Coming on top of his tri- visit okay. to Europe last week, again, this is not helpful.
0: All right, sir, we are going to break. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to give you some weather, and then we're also going to update from CBS.
1: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: It is 834 and currently 85 degrees in the Twin Cities. Uh, We are continuing to monitor the situation uh, from London and we will have another report in just over 15 minutes. But right now we're chatting with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. Uh, I think we both wanted to switch gears here to talk about uh, what happened in the state legislature and with the governor because there's a remarkable situation right now where it looks like the legislature is going to sue the governor.
1: They are going to sue As, the, has
0: something like this ever happened
1: before? Not for the, these kind of reasons, and I can't even think of a situation where the legislature ever actually sued the governor. Now, in 150 years, there might be a situation, but I doubt it. And so, okay. so I'm going to say that this is... Brand new in terms of we've ever seen before, but it's also precipitated um, by something the governor did, which I'm going to argue it was precipitated by something the legislature did. And right. So let me work backwards: okay. is that they are suing the governor because the governor used his light item veto um, to to um, X out the appropriation for the state legislature um, for the coming biennium. And so so he basically is claiming that he has a constitutional authority, which he does to use a line item veto to get rid of certain appropriations. Um, and he said, that power extends to me being able to take away all the funding for the state legislature. Right. The legislature is coming back and claiming and saying that no, you don't have the right to do that. That's a violation of separation of powers, um, and we're going to sue you. Um, and on Friday, they voted to do that, or at least a committee voted to do that on party lines, and they've also designated an attorney to bring the lawsuit.
0: All right, so now they're going to try and sue the legis- or sue the governor. Correct. Um,
1: does he have the authority to do that? I would say he does not have the authority to do that, because by using the line item veto the way he did, he is trying to essentially shut down um, a constitutionally explicit or created branch of government. And so I think the courts will eventually rule that he doesn't have that authority to be able to use the, his light item veto to that extent. But now, let's explain why I think this becomes even more interesting of a case, is that in part the reason why he said he did that was in retaliation because of of what he calls a poison pill put in the tax bill. The tax bill, which the governor had some reservations about, um, he wound up signing because within that bill was a provision that said that, that that provided for the funding for the Department of Revenue, which meant had he vetoed the tax bill the Department of Revenue would have um, lost its funding and so the governor not wanting to risk a a um, shutdown sent a letter to the legislature saying that that because this provision was in there and because of other provisions that you have put in other omnibus spending bills I don't want to risk a state shutdown I I will not restore your funding until you do um, certain things now the reason why I mention all of this is because one of the other things that's going on here are serious allegations that, in fact, the legislature is violating a different provision of the Constitution, which is a provision which is called the single-subject rule. The single-subject rule was put in place back, at the, at the, back when the Constitution was first written, um, for among other reasons, to prevent the legislature from Grouping together unrelated um, um, forms of legislation um, in order in, in order to be able to sneak them through. Um, it's also there to also prevent um, voter confusion and so forth. And so what we've seen over the last few years is is by both parties, but especially this year, a significant abuse by the legislature of the single subject bill, where they're putting more and more stuff into fewer and fewer bills, and that's precipitating a different sort of constitutional crisis at this point, that some legislators, including John Marty um, and others, have protested. And there are stories that some legislators now might want to file suit, um, charging that there is a violation of the single subject rule going on, too. Wow. Okay.
0: <laughs> this, this, this is very is, complex, this is pretty, by the way. This is pretty darn complicated. It is. Um, do you see, like, a judge issuing sort of a stay as this goes forward so the legislators can continue to pay and their business gets done, or... What happens?
1: Well, I'm assuming that they're going to ask for a stay on the on the on the governor's um, light item veto, um, and that that would be my assumption. To give them more time to be able to argue this out, and but we're going to find that out soon because again, they literally just voted on Friday to bring the lawsuit. I would assume that that um, Kelly Doug Kelly's law firm um, um, would, would ask for a stay in terms of that if the case is going to have to go to the to the Ramsey County what I'm expecting is going to happen it will get filed in Ramsey County Court probably ask Ramsey County Court for a stay um, assuming the court depending on what happens um, the case will either be argued out argued out very quickly um, or or if a stay is actually issued the be a little bit more time to be able to do something, but eventually this is a case that's going to go up to the up to the Minnesota Supreme Court. I think more likely than not, if the only issue before the Supreme Court, Minnesota Supreme Court, is the governor's use of the legislative veto, or I mean, of the line-item veto, um, the governor loses. On the other hand, if there were to be a case that were also brought up on the single subject rule, and those two were to come up together then it would be kind of interesting to see what the court would do, because we are looking at, again, a legislature that appears to be violating the single-subject rule, uh, in some ways forcing the governor to have to act the way he did, um, although he could have opted to still veto everything. And so this becomes very, very messy and complicated, but, but if only the issue of the, of the line-item veto goes before the court, I think more likely than not the governor loses, even though a majority of those on the Minnesota Supreme Court are his appointees
0: but wouldn't I mean aren't those
1: two really distinctly
0: separate issues?
1: actually no they're not that that if you go back historically to the to the writing of the Minnesota Constitution in the nineteenth century, um, a, a gubernatorial line item veto and the single subject rule are historically limit, are historically linked, and both of them were meant to deal with fears of corruption um, or put it in my modern language now fear of shenanigans going on in the state legislature. And in th- Minnesota was Pat, Pat
0: Kessler actually used a real... Pat Kessler used the word in a live shot at 10 o'clock, skullduggery.
1: Skullduggery <laughs> may be a good word, too. Okay, I was, I was like, so wow, quick. that's really good. Yeah, so I was, 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 was going to say, so, so Pat, you know, so, and some people might know Pat's my neighbor, and so, so the two of us are, are now using old terms on um, to describe it. But it's true, to either address skullduggery or shenanigans, um, Minnesota like many other states across the country, adopted single-subject rules and adopted line-item vetoes. The single-subject would be to prevent any kind of, again, shenanigans or log-rolling going on in the legislature, and if somehow things did actually pass, then the governor could line-item veto those. And so you really Mm -hmm. do have to think of the two of them being associated historically together in terms of trying to solve the same or similar problem, which is why it would make sense for – i have to be honest here, for the Democrats in the legislature um, or for somebody to bring the single-subject rule up um, in terms of parallel litigation so that the Supreme Court could actually address them together. Because if only the issue of the legislative ve- or line item veto is brought up – sorry, I keep using that term – only if only if the line item veto is being brought up, then the court could only rule on that matter.
0: Right. Well, it, it does seem like it is headed to court. It's interesting, though, that um, – uh, and you mentioned Doug Kelly who's the attorney that that the uh, republican legislature wants to hire he's a, a number of years ago many years ago he ran for governor as a republican um he's an assistant us attorney uh, he also i was dealing with him on uh for yesterday God, it was just yesterday uh he also happens to be the Wetterling's attorney yes Jerry and Patty Wetterling so that, that's the guy's a busy guy
1: he's very he's very busy and he's very very good i mean they are um, they are hiring somebody that clocks it around, I think, $650 an hour. Um, he's very good.
0: Right, yeah. and he's, he's already, uh, I think they've already said that they will knock that down uh, in half. What about the governor sort of announcing this laundry list of, of you know different things that he wanted as a concession? I mean, obviously that wasn't going to fly.
1: It's not going to fly. He's basically dictating to the legislature. I mean, there's a little bit of um, taking my bat and ball and going home kind of thing on this on this. I mean, if he really certainly wanted all those different things, he should have vetoed those bills. You know, the fact that he didn't, he's now telling the legislature, well, I'm not going to let you have any money for your operations unless you do X, Y, Z. Uh, and I certainly don't think governors can, can dictate the legislatures. And that's what it's sort of coming across right now, is that even though the governor enjoys very, very high approval ratings, probably the highest he's ever had this comes across as a, um, as a strategy where it looks like he's just basically trying to order um, um, another branch of government to do exactly what he wants. And I'm not sure how well that plays with the legislature. I'm not sure how eventually how well it'll play with broader Minnesotans.
0: And, and uh, you know, it's obvious that, you know, there was concern, though, on his part, that a government shutdown had to be avoided. Yes, and I think and it's the- and so he kind of carved this out and sculpted it in a way where there won't be a government shutdown. But you know, he obviously obviously a lot of thought went into this.
1: Yes, I I I think a lot of thought went into it. Uh, but again, I wouldn't say as much as. Uh, I would have hoped because if he actually thought about the legal implications in terms
0: we of... he had to have had some lawyer advising him
1: well, I think the I'm assuming that the attorney general's office um, would have had had would have been consulted in this matter because ultimately they're going to have to now defend defend the governor um, in a lawsuit against the legislature. Uh, but I can't imagine that that the that if he actually consulted the attorney general, they would have said that you're on firm legal ground in this area. Uh, because again, I just don't see given the past legal precedents that they're out there by the Minnesota Supreme Court, that It gives the power of the governor to basically shut down another branch of the government. I mean, to me, this would be no different than if the governor said, I don't like the decisions that the Minnesota Supreme Court or the judiciary is issuing. I'm just going to defund the judiciary. And that's sort of the same thing here. I don't like what the legislature is doing. Um, I'm going to sign a bunch of bills, but then shut them down until they actually do my bidding. Um, that doesn't – I don't think that plays very well in terms of, of, of a legal argument, and politically I'm not sure how well that plays.
0: Right, and then I think you know, one of his arguments too was on this language that, that would bar illegal you – know, people who were undocumented from getting driver's licenses. I mean his point was this is already in the law. This is redundant. Um, it apparently is already Minnesota law.
1: Yes, it's so already he- Minnesota law. Uh, and, and again, I come back to it that he has a laundry list in about a seven, it's about a six or seven page letter to the legislature, and all of them are are are, are depending on your political perspective, reasonable disagreements, reasonable concerns um, that the governor can express. But he he was faced with the choice here, faced with the choice of. Of either signing those bills and averting a government shut-off or shutdown, um, or vetoing them and risking, and risking a, a government shutdown. And, again, the problem comes back to the fact that, again, the legislature on one level started all of this by what I would argue is the violation of the single-subject provisions. One of the things that we've seen over the last few years, and I think Pat Kessler and I talked about this about a week ago, is that if we go back about 10 years ago, 15 years, there hasn't been any change in the number of bills actually introduced by the state legislature over that 10- or 15-year period. But the number of them that are actually passed... Um, um, actually is dramatically lower. And it's not that they're passing fewer bills, per se, Is they're combining more and more of those initial bills um, into larger and larger um, bills that are violating the single subject. And so they're packing them in ways that, again, our constitutional framers for the state of Minnesota did not want to see happen.
0: And do you you expect that uh, the attorney general will bring that up?
1: Well, I'm assuming the attorney general will, will bring that should bring that up as an issue. Um, however, again, I'm not sure, lacking a, a case bringing up the single-subject rule um, in, in, before the court, that that's going to fly. Instead, the whole case will revolve around whether or not the, the governor's line-item veto has exceeded its constitutional authority in terms of, of basically shutting down another branch of the government. And if that's how the issue is going to singularly be phrased, then again, I think it's pretty likely the governor loses.
0: All right. And does this put Lori Swanson, the attorney general, in a difficult position? Because I think most people think she's going to run for governor. Think- and then on the other side, you've got Kurt Dowd, who's expected to run you know, or jump in eventually as, as on the Republican side.
1: Yeah, I think this sort of adds to the intrigue at this point, because I think it was interesting the other day that Lori Swanson was relatively mum in terms of her views on, on, on this case. And it might be simply the fact that she's keeping lawyer – attorney-client confidentiality and not wanting to say anything, but also it might very well be the fact that she's in a very difficult legal situation right now. Again, if she's reading the precedents in the way I'm reading the precedents at this point, the law is probably against the governor at this point, and she's in a position of having to defend the governor in a fairly untenable situation, and probably the way you don't want to go into a race for governor yourself is to lose <laughs> losing a high-stakes, high-profile case. On the other hand, this potentially helps Um, The Speaker of the House um, doubt in terms of of if he were to prevail in this one, he looks like, I think, even more of a hero to the Republican base that he bought. He beat a governor with high approval ratings.
0: All right. Well, we'll have to see how that continues to play out. Um, We are expecting here in just a minute here an update from CBS News on the latest in the London uh, probe. Uh, In terms of just quickly, though, uh, going forward, I mean, how long do you see this legal battle drawing out?
1: I think it's I think it's going to go very quickly because again I think you were correct in pointing out that there ought to be some kind of request for uh, for a stay on the governor's um, um, xing out the legislative funding for next year but again that doesn't kick in until July 1st and so I essentially see most of this playing out in the next three to four two to three weeks and three to four weeks um, at least in terms of the stays in terms of the arguments on the merits that could take a lot a little bit longer but I actually think this is going to move much more rapidly than many people think.
0: All right, chatting with Professor David Schultz, we're going to take a quick break here. We are going to go to CBS News with the latest in their series of special reports on what appears to be a severe terrorist attack in London. It is uh, 8.53 here. Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz uh, covering a lot of topics here, but we want to just get some you know, final thoughts on the situation in London, which obviously is unfolding Uh, Multiple casualties there in what is now being called a terrorist attack. Uh, There are uh, multiple fatalities, multiple people injured. There look like there are at least five suspects, five of whom may, in fact, um, have been um, five suspects. Some of them may have been killed as well. Uh, David Schultz, you're somebody who travels a great deal uh, internationally internationally. your thoughts about that, and more and more, I think young people you know, you're, you're obviously a college professor are traveling internationally. I, I mean, it, it, this is scary stuff,
1: it is scary stuff. And I think, you know, on one of the CBS reports, they you know, I think the first one at 20 after eight when I was listening to it, you know, the U.S. Embassy over in England is warning sort of American citizens at this point to be very careful and i think that's one of the things to be thinking about here is let me link a couple of things together here we've got the you know this terrorist you know it looks like a terrorist attack you know we have also trump pulling out of the paris accord which seems to be heightening um, i think international um, um, disrespect, or let us say, certainly you know, isolationist. isolation or, con- or, or conflict, the Muslim ban, which also I think is increasing tensions between the United States and parts of the world. Um, it very well could become, you know, you know, more dangerous for Americans to be tra- you know, traveling abroad. Certainly not saying um, it is, but I think it certainly becomes a concern. But it's certainly, and I know. And I, you know, I'm just back, you know, three weeks ago from, you know, from you know, from Israel. Um, I'm going to be going to China, you know, in July for two weeks to teach. You know, I know, you know, my trips that I've made recently, you know, you know, Israel, what, Lithuania, I now. Mean, the security uh, there must have been extraordinary. Oh, absolutely extraordinary. You know, the. That was right, and that was right before the president went to Israel. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I, I think I flew out. Like, like two days before the president flew in or something like that. I obviously didn't stay at the same hotel, I'll tell you that. Um, um, but but I was going to say is that the number of questions that I'm getting about the United States, you know, in terms of what's the United States up to, uh, are they going to be there for us um, in terms of defending us, uh, there's, there's an awful lot of churning and an awful lot of sort of, um, concerned about the United States internationally in terms of, you know, you know, wondering, you know, what's this isolationist move mean? And that's essentially what it is, is that Trump is really sort of moving us back in the direction that we haven't seen that, with Republicans since the 1950s, where, where Republicans took, um, at least for a part of time, some of the candidates, a very isolationist perspective on the world and wanted to walk away from international commitments or involvement. And I'm not sure that's the best strategy for the United States because since the Cold War to the present, it's been our active engagement across the world that has largely made the United States um, um, or has largely created a world for the United States where we've become sort of you know the most dominant player in world politics. and by retreating from it, we're retreating from having influence over other countries around the world
0: right and and obviously, with these continued attacks at, at you know in our you know at, these are our Great Britain is arguably our, our top ally. Um, it's something that, that one wonders how there appear to be tensions between the president, certainly, and Theresa May, as well as Angela Merkel, certainly uh, the new president of France, Macron. Um, it, it's it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. Obviously, a, a terrible tragedy here, but it doesn't seem as if the president has forged any great relationships so far with, with some of these allies.
1: Exactly correct. That In fact, um, he's being criticized... For- um, for also not only not forging good relationships with our allies, but embracing people such as the president, what's the Philippines, if I remember correctly, um, Duterte you know who in many ways is, is an autocrat. And so he seems to be praising non-democratic leaders across the world and turning his back upon some of our closest allies you know and that clearly I think has, both a short-term and a longer-term corrosive impact especially was it earlier this week was Angela Merkel you know from Germany said that perhaps the United States can no longer be dependent upon and if the United States is going to be internationally that is and if the United States retreats from its international role does that not leave a void for other countries to fill Both but, but friends quickly both.
0: i mean you know don't you think though that there are there are supporters of the president or people who, who You know, who were considering voting for him will say, listen, he talked tough on terrorism. You know, we got to listen more to the president.
1: Yes, I think there will be supporters who say that, but it's certainly not clear that any of these strategies in terms of saying take it a go-it-alone strategy is going to do anything to make America safer. And, in fact, it has really been that international cooperation you know, started under, let's say, George Bush and continued under Barack Obama um, in terms of trying Mm -hmm. to address terrorism that has actually prevented us from facing another major attack.
0: All right, Professor David Schultz, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for staying with us on on a pretty busy evening here as we've gotten all those updates. Uh, Thank you, sir. Keep it right here on CBS and WCCO Radio.